Lord, your word says that you inhabit the praises of your people. We believe that. Lord God, we believe that, that you are here. And Lord God, in as much as you are here, would you allow there to be a demonstration of your spirit that makes it undeniable that you not only inhabit the presences or the praises of your people, but that you are deeply interested in fine-tuning our hearts, Lord God, to yours. Lord God, would you help us this morning to see ourselves like we've never seen ourselves before and to see you more clearly, to understand your son, Lord God, to um, let it just be a demonstration of the spirit. Lord God, find us exactly where we are. Lord God, and speak to us with laser-like clarity. Lord God, reveal yourself, reveal our sin. Draw us to your son. Equip us for your service. And beautify, Lord God, your word. And make us more sensitive, Lord God, to those around us who are perishing. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, we are continuing in our series entitled Kingdom First. And uh, we're going to be looking specifically at Acts chapter 18. Thank you, brother. In Acts chapter 18, uh, yet another segment of uh, the Apostle Paul's journey. And um, as we look at that, I believe we're going to be able to carve out, or I hope we'd be able to carve out um, some additional insights that would help us in our journey as a church on our mission. We kind of kick off the beginning of the year by reframing our, our vision, which is we want to be a church that displays the reconciling hope of the good, good, good. And we want to do that through a mission which is stated as we want to make disciples who are growing in the as a while on. And so we're going to be looking at that third facet of while on mission. Now, as we look at this third facet of uh, of mission, I hope you'll see its connectedness with the other two pillars and how you can't go on any authentic mission without family and without also growing in the gospel. And uh, I believe that there are going to be some nice nuggets of truth that we see that will help us as a local church move in that way uh, in uh, chapter 18, verses 1 through 11 of the book of Acts. So if you've got your Bibles already open to that space or your device is already dialed up. Um, let us read. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Now when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed him and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent, for now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there, and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. 
His house was next door to the synagogue. And in Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord. And together with his entire household and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And Paul stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. How many of you recognize the image on the screen behind me? Prior to the advent of the in-home gaming system, the PS5 or whichever one you might have, there was a time when we would all have to go to this place, maybe on the other side of town or maybe right around the corner from your house, a place called a, an arcade. Or perhaps maybe a bowling alley that had an arcade little enclave. Now, in the golden era of arcades, you would go in and there would not only be these maybe electronic systems like a Mr. Pac-Man, a Pac-Man machine or Miss Pac-Man, or maybe there was um, uh, Asteroid or Donkey Kong or something of that nature, but there would also be these other more mechanically oriented machines that still were kind of electrified, but these bad boys back here, which is called a pinball machine. Now, just to make sure that we on the same page, how many people here have not only seen one, but actually played on a pinball machine? Very good, very good, all right. Just wanna make sure we didn't have an anachronistic illustration here. Um, well, the pinball machine uh, would, was also themed. I don't know what your favorite was, but they would have one with like, you know, Gene Simmons on it. It was like the Kiss, you know, pinball machine. You guys don't know who remembers that one. There was an Incredible Hulk. There was uh, the band ACDC. Uh, there was a $6 million man. I mean, so they would have all these themes, but regardless of the theme of the pinball machine, they all had the same basic function. You remember. You place your quarters in, you press a button that says start, and then a ball would jump out into this uh, lengthy track on the right-hand side, always on the right-hand side. I've never seen the plunger on the left, have you? Always on the right. So then you would pull this spring-loaded plunger, and you would release it, and then, of course, the plunger would strike this ball, and it would run through the machine and go through a series of pingings around or whatever, and then eventually gravity would take over because the machine had a slight tilt to it, right? And if you didn't do anything, the ball would just kind of find a little track down the middle and just kind of run down and then the game would be over or else you would have to get another ball. But what I find to be intriguing about the work of pinball machines and its unique simplicity is that whether it was intentional momentum created by the plunger or unintentional momentum created by just the, the ball moving around, no matter what it ran into, it was scoring points. And it was kind of our job, if we were playing the game, to, to, to control just these two very basic levers on the left and right of the machine. We would press those buttons and those, those levers would hit the ball and push it back into other things. And our whole goal was just to hit the ball, keep it in play, keep it moving, and to capitalize on its momentum. Because again, no matter what it ran into, whether it was planned or unplanned, it was scoring points. Well, I believe that this is much like the life of the apostles. When I read the book of 
Novax, and I see this initial plunger, this launching of them into the diaspora, right, where they are told very early in the book of Acts that to tarry in Jerusalem, stay here. I'm going to go to be seated at the right hand of the Father. The Holy Spirit will come. He will give you boldness, and he will give you power to become witnesses to me uh, and in, 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 in all the world, right, beginning in Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, right, and all these other outlying regions. We see the disciples just kind of launched out there from Acts chapter 3, and all the places where they go and where the gospel is moving sometimes seems incredibly random, but no matter where they land, they always are making moves and scoring points for the kingdom. I believe that that's not only the life ethic of the apostles and the disciples, I believe it's also something that we're called to do too. And so uh, in today's message, I want to demonstrate how quite clearly from this text that we should learn this as people. Kingdom first people should always look for ways to maximize missional momentum. Kingdom first people should look for ways to always maximize missional momentum. Let me give you some more clarity on this. If you look at these first four verses, kind of drag through them very slowly. After this, what is the this? In the previous chapter, the Apostle Paul, before coming into Corinth, had been in Athens, and he had just wrapped up his iconic message on Mars Hill. On Mars Hill, he preached a message, and some people opposed him, and some people chose to follow him. And after that, he just made a move and planned to come on down into Corinth and begin sharing the gospel there. It was a planned move. But then the Bible tells us after that, something else happened, that there were two people who we kind of know them as quasi-Bible celebrities, Aquila and Priscilla. Now, it says that Aquila and Priscilla, according to the text, who were natives of Pontus, recently come from Italy, this guy does, with his wife because of what? Claudius, the emperor, had put out a mandate that Jews needed to leave Rome. So their departure from their home was unplanned. But then look at what happens. Their lives come together, and then God begins to use Paul in their life in a way that I'm going to display for you in a moment that I believe is going to really um, just kind of blow your socks off. But I think we need to understand and appreciate this, that, that our station in life is a composite of both planned and unplanned moves that God wants to use. Our station, your current station in life, these seats on these pews that you are warming as you look at me, your life is a grand composite of planned and unplanned moves. Some of you are here because you were born and raised, and this is just all you know. Some of you are here because you, you, you came for school and you decided not to leave. You said, I'm going to anchor down. Some of you are here because there were friends who said it's a cool place and you decided to try it out. Some of you are here because you, you came because your, your job moves you and otherwise you would have stayed where you were. Some of you are here because you're, this is where your grandkids now live and you'd rather be here. Some of you are here because you were, were living in Milwaukee and now you've got arthritis and you need somewhere warmer and you don't want that heat that comes from Florida. Some of you are here at this church literally because someone else invited you and you have no plans of being in this particular place. Some of you are here and are, trying, are screaming and kicking to get out of here, but you are here nonetheless. 
All of our current stations in life are a composite of both planned and unplanned moves. Paul's move into Corinth was planned. Aquila and Priscilla's move was unplanned. But look at Paul's words at the tail end of his sermon on, uh, at Mars Hill. He tells them that God is not far from every one of them. In, in, in Acts chapter 17, verses 27 and following, he says, listen, uh, actually more beautifully, he says in verse 26, if you can see it, it may not be on your screen, but hear this. And he has made from, he has made uh, from uh, man, man from every, uh, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God, perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us for, here it is, in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own prophets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Paul defines in this previous message, before he meets Priscilla and Aquila, this idea that we are all living in a providential theater of God's omnipresence. We are all, we have our movements, our living, and our breath. We are all living in a providential theater of God's omnipresence. Molly, can you say that? We are living in a providential theater of God's omnipresence. Uh, it's an inside joke. We, we can display it later. But, but here's the deal. Providential. Regardless of how vast, wide, and random life may seem, the places where we are are part of the providence of God. How he uses kind of the unique levers of life, right, to get us in spaces where he wants us or where he wants to use us. Part of it might be your plan, other part, but it's his overarching plan to have you be where you are. And then the Bible says not only is God providentially moving in the lives of people so that they live and move and have their being in him, but then it says that he is not far from every one of us. So he is then there at the same time. So it's a providential theater of God's presence. You are here on purpose. You're here on purpose. And what's interesting about that, whether it was jobs or problems or persecutions, uh, professional acumen or personal choices that landed you here today, you are here in this station of life in a way, regardless of the moves that God wants to use. Look at some of the moves that God uses in the lives of just these two to three people that we see here. So while Paul meets up with Aquila and Priscilla in verses one and two, the text goes on to tell us that the two of them happen to also be of the same trade. Oh, what a coincidence. So then because of the fact that they both have this shared profession of being tent makers, Paul decides to stay with them for a while. Fast forward, you can read it for yourself. It's not going to be, it may not be on your screen, but fast forward to Acts um, chapter 18, verse 26, and you'll see Aquila and Priscilla just happen to be out, and they hear this young man named Apollos preaching. And the Bible says that Apollos is eloquent, vivacious, catchy, riveting, gifted, sharing the gospel, but there's something missing. He only knows the truth of God up to the ministry of John the Baptist. Aquila and Priscilla pull Apollos aside, share with him the truth of God in a more comprehensive way. He then goes back out doing the same thing he did, that same gift, that same fire, that same passion, that same preaching, and tons and tons of other people come to know the Lord based on them pulling him aside and pouring into his life. Now, let me say this. 
do you think having the great architect of the New Testament at their dinner table every night, ha, 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 what did y'all do today? Pouring into their lives, the Apostle Paul hanging out with them because they're fellow tent makers. Do you think by chance that had anything to do with their ability being built up in the gospel to take someone else and pull them aside and share the truth of God more comprehensively? Of course it did. Of course it did. So recognize that all of your relationships and all of your reactions and all of the spaces where we find ourselves, they are a composite of planned and unplanned moves that God wants to use. Kingdom first people ought to live lives of constant gospel readiness then. If no matter how I got here and how long I plan to stay here or how, you know, how quickly I plan to move on, that means that we as kingdom people ought to live lives of constant gospel readiness. The Bible put it this way, or Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 1, verse 15, for as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to them that are in Rome. That in Rome. Paul is gifted. Paul is committed. Paul is passionate, but he says that his readiness is directly proportionate to as much as is in him. We as people, gospel people, we as kingdom first people need to live lives of perpetual gospel readiness. I need the gospel. I need the truth of God constantly ruminating in my heart so that it is constantly picking up traction from my gifts, from my personality, from the world and from the things that I see, from my race, from my ethnic background, from my economic social situation, from my professional life. As the gospel is ruminating, in my life, it's picking up all of these different ways in which I can contextualize it like nobody's business in the places where we do life. Gospel people or kingdom people need to be gospel-ready people. Now, you already believe this away from your, your, your life in Christ. How many diaper bags are there in this room? Because you are, as much as is in you, you are a parent. And that bag is filled with stuff that you may not use today, you may not use tomorrow, but you know you will use. You're parent ready. You got little pouches of applesauce. You've got miniature nail clippers. You've got little mittens. You've got extra bottle tops. You've got more wipes than we could use in two months. You've got extra diapers. You've got little bags to store them in. You've got stuff jammed in every one of those compartments because you, as much as is in you, you are a parent, you are prepared for the moment, regardless of what it is. Somebody in here is wearing a pocket knife. Not because as you dress yourself in the mirror, you said to yourself, I plan on stripping some leather today. <laughs> You're wearing a pocket knife because you, you live a life of perpetual readiness. You never know when somebody needs to open some boxes and the tape is just too tough. You're ready. I would venture to say that 60% of the trunks in this parking lot have jumper cables or some other accessory that represents your readiness. You're a driver. You're not planning to have an emergency. You're not going to stand out on the, on the edge of the, the, the sidewalk, clicking your jumper cables going, who needs a boost? Who needs a boost? You're not going to do that, but you do live lives of readiness for that event. Planned and unplanned. So people who take certain things seriously, they plan and they're ready. So you're already living lives of readiness in many ways. Man, I remember, I'll never forget the first time I took a tour of the firehouse. Did I ever tell you guys this story as a little boy? 
going on a tour of the firehouse, man, I thought the most impressive thing would be to see the pole that they slide down. But no, you know what the most impressive thing at the firehouse was? When we went into the, the sleeping quarters, the firemen had those special pants that they put on already scrunched up so that they could just pivot out of their bed, throw their feet in them, and put the suspenders up and be like, pew, down the pole. I was like, them boy, they ready. I love that. People who take seriously what they do live lives of perpetual readiness to do that. How much more, if we're kingdom people, are we not to be living lives of constant gospel readiness? There's a mother out here right now with a purse full of peppermint, waiting for some child to whine or someone to cough with a dry throat and say, here you go, baby. We live lives of readiness based on our observation of our environment. And I believe that kingdom first people ought to live lives of constant gospel readiness because we never know when the Lord is going to bring us into, well, not we never know, we always know that the Lord is going to bring us in spaces and occasions where gospel sharing is apropos. Look at verses 5 through 7. Verses 5 through 7, the Bible says, And Silas and Timothy arrived in Macedonia. Well, when they arrived, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, opposed and reviled, they opposed him. In other words, they weren't interested, but they went a step further. They reviled him. Opposed and reviled. This is not just subtle, passive, aggressive. This isn't like the you just kind of face forward and refuse to entertain the person who's trying to get you to buy their CD at the grocery store at the gas station. And you just said, mm -mm, I'm okay. No, no, no. It says that they reviled. They took the CDs, broke them against their knee, and, and ground them. Right? They, they, they opposed and they reviled what Paul was doing among them. And the Bible says that he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads, I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Real quick, you might think that's Paul being a little bit aggressive, but it mirrors exactly what, Paul, what Jesus taught his disciples when he sent them out two by two. If anybody did receive you, shake off your garments and keep it moving. The Bible even goes so far as to say in uh, uh, John chapter 3, verse 16, uh, uh, Jesus says here, it says after, in 16, we all know what that says, right? For God so sent his, for God so loved the world that he sent his son, his only begotten son into the world that whosoever received him shall not perish but have everlasting life. But then the Bible goes forward. Here's a, here's a not so favorite verse. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. But whoever believes in him is not condemned. However, but those who do not believe, him, believe in him are condemned already. The default setting is condemnation when you reject the gospel. And this is all that Paul is echoing when he says, all right, he just kind of shook it off and kept it moving. But then look at this. The Bible says something else that is incredibly beautiful. They opposed him and reviled him. He shook off his garments, made that statement, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. And from now on, I will go into the Gentiles. But look at look what it says. And he left from there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. 
And then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord and together with his whole household. And many of the Corinthians hearing Paul were believed and were baptized. What do we take away from this as kingdom people? One, that opportunity for the gospel often lives next door to opposition. He is actively occupied with the business of reasoning every Sabbath in the synagogue. He gets rejected, and then the first audience that actually wants to hear him is somebody who lives next door. Opportunity for the gospel often lives, in op- lives next door to opposition. I don't know how many people still work in cubes. You can tell I'm like from some bygone era of non-virtual work. But if you've ever been sharing the gospel in the office uh, at work and the person who you're talking to is like, man, get out of here. You too churchy for me and you ain't supposed to be talking about this anyway. I'm going to call HR if you don't leave now. And someone hears that dialogue over the cube and they've been listening to all of your impassioned pleas. They've been a silent listener the whole time. And then they, but they are interested and they develop a curiosity for the Christ out of your rejection. Because of the opposition to the gospel, you are then further impassioned in your explanation and you, your appeals. And that information actually makes it over the cube into the hearts and lives of others. Opposition to the gospel often lives next door to its opportunity. I mean, I'll never forget one of the biggest promotions, uh, the, one of the earliest and biggest promotions in my career. I'm sitting at the table, three people in front of me, my boss, my immediate boss, who is an atheist, um, my boss's boss, who is an unbeliever, and then my boss's boss's boss, I won't tell you his spiritual disposition yet, but I'm sitting in front of all three of them, and there's a question that comes up about my leadership. Um, philosophy. And I began in a very clever and uh, kind of melted down way, begin to explain the unique relationship between Timothy, uh, uh, Paul, and also Barnabas. But I wasn't using their names. I was just talking about one of my favorite authors often talks about the relationship alongside the relationship behind and the relationship ahead. And so I'm going into this. And so one of the persons in the interview was like, well, say more about that. Say more about that. Say more about that. And so I pause for just a moment, and I'm like, all right, Lord, if I get too Bible-y, I'm going to blow it. I'm going to blow this interview. I was like, you know what, though? But if I'm going to blow something up, I'm going to do it for you. Let's go. And so I was like, let's go. And so I begin to explain. I was like, well, actually, all of this comes from the Bible. And I begin talking even more comprehensively, and I get all excited. I'm like, I've, I've lost the job anyway, so I'm just going to go all in, <laughs> you know. And here's what happens. End of the interview... I get called into an office, and it's the other guy who I did not disclose. He's the boss of everyone. He's the boss's boss's boss. He's the senior vice president. He pulls me in the office. He goes, man, he goes, uh, man, I really appreciate what you had to say in there. Shook my hand, tells me that he's also a believer. And he says, you know what? He says, your boss came in here just a moment ago, who's the, who's the atheist. And he goes, you know, Rod, man, he's a really nice guy, really skilled, great at his job, but that's what he does. He's just one of these Bible thumpers, man, and he's always talking about Jesus. And you know what I said to him? What's wrong with that? Needless to say, I got the job that day. (laughs) But of even greater importance, the guy in the middle accepted Jesus later on in our relationship. And we're friends today. I share that story because I felt real fear about being open and provocative about my faith. 
I share that story because the fear is real, the trepidation is real, the temptation to be silent is real. I share that story because the opposition to it is real. There really was someone in the background undermining my opportunity, saying that, yeah, he's a nice guy, but he's just too much on that Bible stuff. And had gone ahead of me after the interview to actually sully my opportunity, but the Lord had people in that place. I say this to, care, to, to, to encourage you, that opportunity for the gospel. And the real opportunity wasn't a job that I got. The real opportunity was that my boy got saved. Opportunity for the gospel often lives next door to opposition to the gospel. Don't ever forget that. And it's okay because the gospel is, is multifaceted in its function. I know often when we're, when we're sharing the gospel, we kind of feel at times maybe like a used car salesperson. Like, hey, man, this thing has been around for a while. It's got high mileage, but I'm telling you, you can, you can trust this. <laughs> and we're hoping that they don't find out about any of the bad and ugly stuff in the history of the church before they drive off the lot with it. We hope that they make those discoveries after they've already committed and signed the paperwork and get home. We are not used car salespeople. The gospel is not some old raggedy vehicle with a lot of miles in history that's done some bad things that we're trying to cover up. Sometimes when we're declaring the gospel, people need to hear it because a part of its function is to serve notice that if you don't change, you will, you will be condemned. So let us not find ourselves in this moment of trying to make the gospel pretty. Share it. Share it with passion. Share it clearly. You don't have to be brash, but don't feel like you're trying to polish it up so that it is more palatable to a heart that would otherwise be offended by its history or the church's history. God is not ashamed of his history. He's in full control of what has happened in the past. And yes, there are some ugly things, but guess what? There's also some ugly things in me. that the Lord has worked through and even used for his glory. Well, what does all this mean? Isaiah chapter 55, verses 11 and following tell us that uh, the word of God comes down, and when it does what it does, it says, so shall my word that goes out of my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that for the purpose that he sent it. And it will succeed in the thing that I sent it to do. When you speak God's word, understand that it is working even if it does not appear to be winning in the way that you thought it should. Kingdom first people know that there is no waste in God's economy, therefore there should be no waffling in our execution. Kingdom first people recognize this truth. If we recognize this truth, that we're doing life in a providential, omnipresent theater, if we do in life with the core conviction that there's no waste in God's economy, then we also believe that, you know what, there shouldn't be any waffling in my execution. Let me go boldly with my faith, because that's why the Holy Spirit came, that we would have boldness to witness, according to Jesus in Acts chapter 1, verses 8 and following. Be bold and don't waffle in your execution. Understand that we, 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 we're delivering a countercultural message, and by necessity and function, it must have some opposition. We're not looking for a fight, but there must be opposition to the gospel because it goes against the grain of the natural human tendencies. We're calling people to repent, to look in the mirror and say that they are wrong and that they can't work their way into God's favor. Yeah. 
and that he died for them on a cross and that he will come again and that he was raised and that he'll raise them too. We're asking people to believe that something that goes against the grain of what their brains would have them to concede to as a solution to their life's deepest issues. That is why it's called foolishness to those that are perishing, but life to those that are believing. All of us used to be one of those fools. Verses 9 through 11. It says, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. No one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed there for, for a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. This is very interesting because when I look at the movements of Paul, the Apostle Paul, I see him as one of the most brazen go-getter mavericks for the gospel of all time. But God doesn't, doesn't waste his breath. If God had to speak to Paul and say, do not be afraid, it means that even Paul in all of his gospel bravado was a man who could and was being gripped by fear. And God thought it was so essential to speak to Paul that he didn't just say it through Timothy on a bus one day. Hey, man, don't be afraid. Go on and, keep, you know, stay with it, buddy. No, God said, I need to make a personal one-on-one -on -one appearance to this man in a vision. Do not be afraid. Go on speaking. Do not be silent. Why would the Lord give this trifecta of encouragements if he didn't have a temptation to be afraid and in reflex to that fear, stop sharing the truth? I believe we all share in that same fearful reflex. Here are the facts of this matter. Everyone, even the most bold and outgoing and gifted and ambitious of us, have fears that we won't be accepted or that we'll be rejected. I believe this passage would alert us to know that we are not alone in our fear and we are not alone. You've got Silas, you've got Timothy, you've got others in this community. We are not alone. We have a church, but we are not alone because the Lord is also with us. Our fear of rejection needs to be inoculated by our faith in God's direction. Our fear of rejection needs to be inoculated by our faith in God's direction. God was the one that said go. It wasn't our idea. We didn't make this up. This is not our lemonade stand or some flower shop or some business that you and I put our heads together and decided to build and we don't know if it's going to work. Our fears should be assuaged and dealt with and dissolved by the fact that it's God who gave the direction to go into the uttermost parts of the world and share and to say along with the Great Commission that he'll be with us and give us the words to say. Jesus even told us that he was rejected. He wasn't accepted. Are you greater than your master? You too will lack acceptance in some of the spaces. But gospel sharing isn't about us vying for acceptance for ourselves. We are just to report and share the message that has transformed our lives. Our fears are real. Feelings that we experience of the, the prospect of an adversity or risk. And the temptation to be quiet is real. 
Sometimes we tell ourselves, well, if I just live authentically out loud, then people will come to know Jesus as well. But I can assure you that those who would lean toward verbal silence are also moving toward lifestyle silence. We don't mind people knowing that we're a little bit different, but will we live out loud with the kind of volume that lets people know that I have actually trusted Jesus? Sharing the gospel and moving on missional momentum is a long game. Verse 11 says, Paul stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. The, missional, the, the, the mission is a long game. The gospel is a long game. There are people, there are people who may be just now coming to know Christ based on the word that you shared 10 years ago. I, a good friend of ours, many of you who know um, Zach Fowler, he and I def, uh, often uh, exchange stories about his time of uh, being a server at Cracker Barrel many years ago in, in Texas and how people will call him today that he had no idea talking about a transformed life that recently happened. The gospel is a long game and kingdom first people must learn to love the long game of the gospel. We are a performance-oriented people. We are an execution-oriented culture. And we tend to believe that unless something dynamic is happening now, that we aren't doing enough. Share the gospel. Be missional. Take advantage of missional momentum. Your next-door neighbor, your cube neighbor, your, your, your book group, the person you run into in Barnes & Nobles, that same server that you always see who hands you your cup at Starbucks, no matter where you go and what you do, you are like the, the ball in that great pinball machine. Score points for the kingdom no matter where you are, whether it is a planned or an unplanned encounter. But I'm begging you, be gospel-ready. Be gospel ready, because when you are gospel ready, it helps you to see those unique gospel moments that otherwise would pass you by. But above all things, why should we play the long game? Because God played the long game with us. I mean, how many of you grew up next door to the synagogue where Paul was preaching and overheard the gospel? Anybody? No? How many of you were uh, uh, at the day of Pentecost? Hmm? No? How many of you lived in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus' resurrection and seen it happen firsthand? Hmm, no one. You and I are the fruit of the long game. You and I are the product of someone who might have been afraid initially but refused to remain silent and made sure that the gospel made it to, through, I mean, to millennia to your Sunday school teacher, to a childhood pastor, to a next-door neighbor, to a co-worker, to a parent. You and I are the fruit of the long game of the gospel. You and I are part of somebody's life who was just pinging around, not knowing why they may have been in this city or that city, but they end up being your roommate in college. You and I are the product of the long game. And there are these random moments in life that were fully reasoned by God that resulted in the gospel being found in our hearts and in our ears. Would you be interested in playing the long game in somebody else's life? Somebody out there refused to be silent. Somebody out there pushed past rejection, the prospect of you resenting them. Somebody thought that your soul was more important than personal favor and acceptance. 
would you be interested in playing the long game for the gospel? And I believe that that's what kingdom people are called to do, to learn to love the long game, to take some shots that I may not be able to see the end of, but Lord, I know you're working because your word will not return to you void. When I talk about this long game, I want you to consider for a moment that the Bible says that no one can come to the Son except he be drawn of the Father. I don't know what unique circumstances may be bouncing around in your life today. If you're a person who does not know Jesus, this might seem incredibly random that you've landed in these pews, but you're hearing these words now. You, you might have thought that your felt need you may have thought just a family member invite. It may have just been, uh, uh, maybe your GPS led you to the wrong building. You were trying to get somewhere else, but yet here you are. It's a missional moment and God wants to meet with you. Give you further clarity on why this isn't a random moment. It is very well reasoned that God is interested in reaching you with this message that you matter enough to him to make sure that the message reaches you right where you are in your greatest mess, your time of deepest fear, your, your sense of greatest inadequacy. God says, I'm interested in talking to you, but not just talking to you to comfort you, but I'm also interested in talking to you to draw you to my son, to help you to see that all of the answers that you seek, all of the issues that you carry, that you can hand them over to me, that you can inquire of me because my son has lived in the space where you live and now wants to live in you and show you how to live the life that he lived. My son gave his life for you as an expression and statement of my love, a commitment. Don't know where you are in your relationship with the Lord, but man, if you're, if you're curious about what it means to know and to follow Jesus Christ, to have him to, to be the Lord of your life, to have the spirit to occupy your life. If you've heard us read passages of scripture about not being afraid and, and you said, man, I would love some of that to know that the Lord is with me. What does that look like? Well, it looks like handing our lives over to the Lord and recognize that there are no random moments in him that these moments are very well reasoned and he wants to reason with you. He wants to reason with you and let you know that no amount of work that you would ever do would ever be able to do able to please him because his son has already done the work. He just needs you to trust him. Trust is difficult because it, it takes us into some territories where we've never been before. And God says, listen, I was willing to go great lengths to find you where you are. Will you at least hear me out? If you're interested in knowing more about this gospel, by all means, come and see me. Or maybe ask the person next to you if you're not comfortable talking to me. But ask someone, what is he talking about? What does it mean to know Jesus? Can I pray? Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you and I praise you for all these that gathered this morning. And where, regardless of where they are in their relationship with you, I beg you as you take inventory of the hearts that you would call us forward in some way. And Lord God, I pray that the person who is so tempted to be silent because they're afraid of how sharing their faith will put them on the outs with their coworkers. Sharing their faith will cause them to no longer be invited to certain social outings. They're afraid to share their faith 
because the church is just not in favor right now. There's great evangelistic headwinds based on the history of the church and they're not willing to share their faith just yet because they want some of that to blow over. Lord God, I pray that you would give that person courage to open their mouth so that when your word advances, they would know for sure that it wasn't them or their personality or their skill or their wit, but it was you that was with them. I pray for the person of God who is hurt, wounded, and wondering if they'll ever be a welcome part of a local church. I pray, oh God, that you're moving on that heart and helping them see the deep need for community in a place like this. And I pray for the person, Lord God, that absolutely does not know you, but wants to because you have drawn them close in this moment. I pray, oh God, that they will put down their defenses, be vulnerable and transparent before you, and even ask you to come into their heart and to save them. Help us now, oh God, to worship you in light of how we have now seen you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.